Good afternoon, one and all, and welcome to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour, a conversation about men at home, at work, and at play, with your host, Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad. Every week, Doug is joined by fascinating guests who tell their own authentic stories and explore all that it means to be a man. And now, here's your host, Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you, moms and dads, boys and girls, for tuning in to today's edition of the Grateful Dad Radio Hour right here on MileHighRadio.com. This is our new home, and I'm really already feeling quite at home, thanks to, uh, in a large measure, the uh, owner, engineer, and guru around here, Haas. So we'll be hearing from him shortly, but uh, MileHighRadio.com is where you've uh, pointed your browser today, and I'm so glad that you're joining me for the Grateful Dad Radio Hour, the show today titled Wrestling with the Holy Land. My guest is Rabbi Brant Rosen. He's a pulpit clergy and activist author and poet uh, calling in from Evanston, Illinois today. And we're going to take what I think um, can be simply described as something of a critical look at Israel and Middle East relations, a very timely topic and one that uh, Rabbi Rosen knows uh, a lot about, including uh, we'll talk about his book, Wrestling in the Daylight, uh, about this very topic. Uh, before we get to uh, that and uh, even to our typical segments of gratitude and full circle fatherhood, I would ask you this favor. Um, let someone know that you're listening to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour on MileHighRadio.com right now. Um, you're on your computer listening, so you can send them out uh, an email and say, hey, point your browser, milehighradio.com is all it takes. Or maybe send them a text and let them know that uh, one great way to listen if they're not at their computer is with the TuneIn Radio app for uh, smartphones. It's a great app. I uh, had fun running into the TuneIn Radio people when I was in San Francisco for Outside Lands a couple weeks ago. It's a free app that'll uh, just allow you to put Mile High Radio into the search feature and find it and uh, take this program and milehighradio.com with you wherever you go or maybe just pick up the phone and say there's going to be a fascinating discussion today on the Grateful Dad Radio Hour and uh, recommend that folks just uh, tune in milehighradio.com and uh, enjoy our discussion. Join it through the chat feature if you care to. I'm so glad to be back, and I'm glad that folks are joining us here. Um, feel free to uh, join my Facebook fan page. It's The Grateful Dads, and you can just uh, like that, or maybe just go right to Doug Gertner. That's my uh, Facebook page, of course. You can uh, become my friend if you like. I've got uh, Twitter going today. At Doug Gertner is where you can tweet me a message, and... Um, I'm hoping that people will join the conversation because it promises to be an interesting one. Also on my show page at uh, milehighradio.com, you'll find an archive of our discussion last week with Dr. Sam Sappington, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the war within is what we talked about, the uh, psychic wounds that soldiers bring home from their service in Afghanistan and Iraq. So uh, lots going on at milehighradio.com. So pleased you've tuned in today. I always begin the show uh, by reflecting on what I'm grateful for. I call it my moment of gratitude. 
Every day I try to use my gratitude journal, and I like to note those things for which I'm grateful, which just continues to remind me I have so much to be grateful for. And so today, with many new experiences just past or pending, I want to pause and offer my moment of gratitude for adventure. I'm grateful for this new adventure in radio at Mile High Radio. As I've said several times, it's familiar yet new. It's solo and also supported, so thanks to Haas for uh, being one of my guides on this adventure. I'm also grateful to have just hosted two young women from the Building Bridges for Peace program, an Israeli and an American. Since I have no daughters, this was definitely something of an adventure for me, and I'll talk more about that in my uh, report coming up after this. And I'm grateful for the big step my uh, stepson, my stepson, my son, the big step my son <laughs> is making, uh, and with him, his mom and me, to high school. This is a new adventure for all of us. We're in public school for the first First time, it's earlier mornings, athletic teams, and a whole lot of unknowns. You get the idea. It's the beginning of a great adventure. And I'm particularly grateful that our son has embraced the adventure with gusto and with ease. Particularly, he's been going to orientations, has been making his way home by city bus when no other ride was available. Perhaps his parents can take some small credit for this and also learn from him as we all get ready for these adventures. My gratitude extends into my work as I plan and prepare for the adventure of November this year when I'm paying it forward by giving as many gratitude workshops as I can book to promote the spirit of giving thanks during the month of Thanksgiving. I've already turned down paid work to remain open to offer these sessions. I've already got a couple of them on the books, and it's just all part of a, a great sort of work-related adventure I'm on including a uh, mastermind group with a fellow named George Ira Carroll and a bunch of other masterminds. Uh, George is a big advocate for adventure, so um, I'm grateful to him as well. And finally, with gratitude, I anticipate the adventures ahead in the coming weeks and months and with the Jewish New Year, kind of not unlike a rebirth, really. I'll be rested and ready for whatever comes my way. So that's my moment of gratitude for this week for adventure and new experiences. And once again, I'm grateful to everyone for listening to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour. I do encourage you to try to make a habit of being grateful. It's true what my wife said to me. I hope it's true what my wife said to me. Hey, I hope it's true what my wife said to me. She says, Baby, it's the beginning of a great adventure. Baby, beginning of a great adventure. Take a look. The Great Lou Reed and the beginning of a great adventure. So um, I want to now ask the question of the aforementioned Haas. Um, what are you grateful for today? Nothing. Okay. No. On to my guest. Next. <laughs> no. no, you know what? I know a lot of people in my situation um, might actually not be grateful because sometimes when you get consumed by negative things, yeah. we tend to really focus on that. Um I'm going through a divorce right now. Yep. Uh, it's not anything like what I thought it was going to be. Mm -mm. And it would be really easy to have that totally consume me. But fortunately, I learned a long time ago to to look for the light, look look for the brightness, 
and uh, two weeks ago, um, a guy who I've known for a while and his wife, who I've known for a while, um, really entered into my life and made me an offer that has really worked out well, at least for me. I hope it works out well for them. I'm, I'm now renting a room from them, uh, and, and that's great. But then just this week, well, not this week, last week, um, a lady who I've known for a while, who just recently gone through a divorce. He, 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 there's a pattern here. Yeah. I mean, people, they're not new people, but they're people that were reconnecting. A lady by the name of Kay Cleland, who is just a dear friend of mine, um, decided that she wanted to get in the radio business. <laughs> so she's going to be my new co-host uh, starting a week from tomorrow on Business Briefs on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Looking forward to that. But then she said... What else can I do? I said, well, what do you want to do? She says, I love to sell. I said, mm-hmm. really? We got some time for you're, sale here, don't you're we? You're my newest best friend. You and, know. But but she's got, you know, I, I told her, I said, the thing that I've always been attracted to you by, the fact, I mean, yeah, you're a beautiful woman, and that's great. You've got a nice personality, and that's great. But you've got the most positive attitude of anybody I've been around. And she's just gone through this divorce. And yet every day, at least in public, she has she's she's posting positive uh, things on Facebook and Twitter and whatever. She That's what she lives. And I thought, you know what? What? I want that here. I want that energy here. So I'm grateful for Kay, for Don, for Cindy. God bless all of you for being in my life because you have no idea how how special this is thanks Haas. and and you know it, it bespeaks the power of gratitude that you know i'm going to ask you this every week and i'm hoping that you know with all the good turns you've done me you do have lots to be grateful for you'll recognize it and um the more gratitude you bring into your life um the 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 more positive uh reports we'll be getting so thank you for that and um now I want to turn to uh, my guest, Rabbi Brant Rosen. You'll be meeting him with his uh, formal introduction uh, very shortly, but um, I-, I think I gave him the heads up on this. I know there's a whole part of uh, our faith tradition that uh, celebrates and recognizes and cultivates cultivates gratitude, but in this case, I just want to put Rabbi Rosen on the spot and say, hey, Brant, what are you grateful for today? Well, uh, I'm grateful for the question uh, because I think we don't have uh, nearly enough opportunities to really express gratitude. Um, they really, uh, I think, too often have to, we have to motivate ourselves to express them from within. So I'm gratitude for the opportunity. And my gratitude, uh, you did uh, give me the heads up, and I've been thinking about it. And I think mine is very similar to Haas's. I'm, I'm very grateful for people and the people in my life in particular. Uh, I'm Grateful to you and in, in our friendship, which is uh, over 20 years now, uh-huh. and uh, for you giving me this opportunity to have this conversation here on the radio. Uh, and I'm also just really grateful for the family and friends and colleagues and congregants and just you know many many myriad of relationships of people who uh, love me, support me, who challenge me, who kick me in the ass when necessary, um, and, um, but mainly inspire me to want to be a better person. Um, and I'm, I'm increasingly aware that that's 
as a sacred part of, of my relationships with others, is that you surround yourself with people who uh, really inspire you to be the best you can be. Um, that's really what it's all about. So that's my, that's my gratitude today. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. That's Rabbi Brant Rosen. He's my guest coming up very shortly. I, I want to add that I'm, I'm also asking this question of you, my listeners. Take a moment right now, if you will, and consider what are you grateful for today? Think about it and, and recognize the power of gratitude. If you go to my website, thegratefuldad.org slash shop, you can get a copy of the gratitude journal that I've made, the Grateful Dad's Journal of Gratitude. I'll be sending one off to Rabbi Rosen because I don't think he's seen this piece. And when you get this, folks, you'll, you'll see the, the beginning is, um, some sharing by me about the power of gratitude and what it's meant to be grateful every day in my life. And just by doing this on a daily basis, last year, every day, I, I wrote down three to five things I was grateful for, and it paid me back over and over again in ways that I did not expect and in ways I just continue to be grateful for. So start keeping a gratitude journal today. Let me know what you find as you do this, and um, I will pivot now to uh, the other piece I like to do each week before introducing my guest is to give an update I call the Full Circle Fatherhood Report. It's based on my contribution to the men's anthology, Ordinary Men, Extraordinary Lives, Defining Moments. They are, they are a sponsor of our show. And um, today's edition of the Full Circle Fatherhood Report is titled Building Bridges. It begins with the notion that peace is a lofty and elusive concept. It's something we're talking about today on the show, which is what uh, in part got me thinking about it. As a young kid, as a young Jew, I learned that the word shalom... Shalom means hello, goodbye, and peace, they told me. And in the latter case, I gather that shalom is that instant, that perfect and temporary moment when all is right in the world. I'll check that out with the rabbi in a little bit. But I was thinking back nearly 20 years ago, I met Melody Feldman, and she had a dream of promoting peace in the Middle East by bringing together young women from the Middle East, both Jews and Arabs living in Israel, as well as Palestinian girls and, and uh, girls from the occupied territories and a diverse group of young American women. She wanted to bring them to a camp that encourages dialogue so that they can learn to empathize with those whom they've been taught to hate. Melody's vision, I'm happy to say, lives on as the camp just concluded its summer session with another successful encounter between these very diverse participants. To date, over 2,000 young people have participated in Building Bridges programs, and many have continued to be involved in community work in their personal and professional lives, affecting immeasurable impacts in their homes and in their communities. And again this summer, we had the immense pleasure of hosting in our home some of the young women participants from the program. We had Yulia. She's a, a 17-year-old Israeli from Beersheba in the Negev Desert. She's the daughter of professionals. She's a secular Jew and a member of the Israeli Scouts. Her sister had been to Building Bridges a few years ago, and Yulia came with the resolve of most Israelis regarding their homeland. We can't give it away to other people. Yet with an open mind and an open heart, she really loved playing with our cat and was on a quest to taste nachos and Starbucks. Our other house guest was an American from nearby Greeley, Colorado, Olivia. She was bright, intellectually curious, well-spoken. She was one of several girls from her hometown in the program this year. The others, however, were Somali immigrants and Muslim 
Olivia is uh, Anglo and Catholic. We had no language barriers, and so it was a real treat to explore the many deep and difficult topics that Olivia and I found ourselves talking about, and she became sort of another de facto host for our Israeli visitor. Over the first weekend prior to the peace camp, Yulia got her taste of Mexican food and her first Starbucks, along with trips to the local Butterfly Zoo and the Boulder and Cherry Creek malls. We made sure that this desert dweller had enough warm layers, and we packed both young women off for a two-week intensive held at a Buddhist retreat center high in the Colorado Rockies. When we picked them up for a final weekend with us after this peace camp, both Yulia and Olivia were clearly and truly transformed. The building's bridges process honed over so many years of bringing people together and helping them come to deeply understand one another had helped to break the cycle of violence and inspire them to seek collaborative solutions to the challenges they face. The camp had equipped these young uh, women and other young participants with the communication and leadership skills necessary to address the root cause of hate, discrimination, and violent conflict. The camp had created a safe space for sworn enemies to meet face-to-face with those they've been taught to fear. Together, they developed personal connections based on empathy and respect and the confidence to transform divisive attitudes in their communities. What a gift for me and Maggie and Jordy to witness the changes in their attitudes and the awareness as these girls downloaded the tremendous emotional experiences of the two weeks they'd been away from us. As our conversations continued, we learned that Yulia had befriended several Palestinian women and was trying to figure out how they might get together back in their homelands in spite of the barriers and the checkpoints that separate them in the small country they both call home. For Olivia, her eyes were open to both the conflict, as it's called, but also to the issues of Native peoples in the U.S. and other indigenous groups who've been displaced and depleted by imperialism, and a discussion of LGBTQ issues at the camp opened the eyes of both girls to another commonly oppressed group. Our time with both girls and at the program's closing celebration in Denver was a grand gift. Not just having teenage women in the house, but also to observe, inform, and learn from their process. Melody Feldman's original version that peace will not come to the Middle East or any of the many other places it is so desperately needed until people, especially women, are engaged in a process of listening and hearing and understanding and resolving differences. That's what Building Bridges did just last week here in Colorado, and that's what they've been doing since 1993. All of this year's participants will go back to their home groups, and those will be ongoing activities and support with expert leaders in their home communities, and hopefully they'll come back to Denver next summer as leaders in training to continue the dialogue and the learning that represents one of the best hopes for peace. My family and I have been touched, we've been taught, we've been transformed ourselves by our involvement in building bridges, and we plan to continue hosting and learning and supporting and participating in this personal peace process all through the year and again next summer. You can learn more at buildingbridgesshift.org, and that's the Full Circle Fatherhood Report for this week. I'll post it soon on my blog at thegratefuldad.org.
the inimitable pop staples and peace in the neighborhood. Grant us all peace and serenity, he says. An apt tune and hopefully an easy segue now to uh, my guest. The topic I call Wrestling with the Holy Land. You'll learn why in just a little while. Uh, my guest today is Rabbi Brant Rosen. In 2008, my guest today, Rabbi Brant Rosen, was honored by Newsweek magazine as one of the top 25 pulpit rabbis in America. A graduate of UCLA and the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, Rabbi Rosen is spiritual leader of the Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation in Evanston, Illinois. Rabbi Rosen is past president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association and currently serves as co-chair of the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council. A longtime activist for peace, social justice, and human rights, Brant Rosen has traveled on delegations to such countries as the former Soviet Union, Nigeria, Rwanda, Uganda, and Iran. In 2010, he was awarded the Inspiration for Hope Award by the Chicago branch of the American Friends Service Committee for his activism on behalf of peace and justice in the Middle East. Rabbi Rosen's writings appear regularly in his two blogs, Shalom Rav and Yadid Nefesh, and he has continued to contribute to uh, such media outlets as the Chicago Tribune, the Huffington Post, and the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, among others. His book, Wrestling in the Daylight, was published by Just World Books just last year. We'll be talking about that today. He's a friend and mentor, a teacher and a role model to me for over 20 years. I know and love his wonderful wife and remember when his two boys were born and bar mitzvahed. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the Grateful Dad Radio Hour, Brent Rosen, Rav Boaz Shalom. <laughs> thank you, Doug. It's really great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for letting me. I mean, I, I want to set the context because, you know, uh, I don't say rabbis are a dime a dozen, but you're you're one in a million, man. And I want people to know where, you know, from in my book, where you're coming from. But as you know, I like to ask my guests to introduce themselves. I, I like to begin with a little background and and ask you to touch if you if if it makes sense to you on a defining moment or two in your life. You know, I've been your friend for more than 20 years, but I wonder how would you introduce yourself um as a man, as a father, as a partner, as a rabbi, uh, as an activist, hmm, I'm getting echo. What sort of of? I'm going to interrupt for just oh, a second, yeah. Rabbi. I, it, it sounds like you've got your computer speakers on. If if that's so, could you turn those off, please? Uh, no, I I, I do not. Um, wow. But I'm on a I'm on a landline phone. Okay. Well, all of a sudden. Oh, well, is, it hard to, is it hard to hear my voice? No, we can no, hear you're you. you're fine. I'm hearing my voice yeah. echoing back at me. So, some feedback. Uh, tell you what, man, I'm going to shut up. I just, here's how I want to put it. I'll use a little Yiddish-American vernacular. What's a nice rabbi like you doing in a peace movement like this, Brand? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, defining moments, I could I could go on and on. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly resonate with... Um, when I hear you talk about being a grateful dad and the journey of parenthood and fatherhood, I mean, I, I could spend a whole other segment um, just talking about how that has been a, a spiritual uh, journey for me, unlike no other, really. Um, so, I, yeah, you can count me as a, a grateful dad, most certainly. Uh, but I think more apropos to our, to our subject and our conversation here, um, there was a defining moment that really... Uh, 
uh, affected, uh, deeply affected the, the trajectory of my work and my, uh, my activism and my sense of really not just myself as, as a rabbi, but as a Jew. And that you mentioned in the introduction um, in uh, 2008 uh, was a, a really a pivotal year for me. Um, I have identified with Israel as a Jew for my entire life, pretty much. Um, I grew up in a family that identified very deeply with Israel, a, a liberal Zionist um, ideology that was very much at the center of our understanding of what it means to be a Jew, that Zionism and a Jewish state, the miracle of a Jewish state um, in our ancient homeland was uh, really the center of, uh, of our self-understanding of what it means to, Jew, to be a Jew in the 20th and 21st century. And um, I often refer to Zionism as uh, the, the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could talk about it later if you like, but I think along the way there had always been, I had always entertained nagging doubts about that narrative and um, about a narrative that put Israel firmly at the center of my Jewish identity. Um, it's, it's interesting that um, progressive people like myself and like you, um, we don't tend toward nationalism. Uh, and yet, when it comes to Israel, uh, we become very, very nationalist. Uh, progressive people don't tend toward uh, uh, militarism, particularly American militarism, or any. And uh, when it comes to Israel, though, we, uh, we accept Israel's militarism as just sort of the price of, uh, of its existence, and we, we apologize for it and rationalize for it. And I think over the years, uh, that incongruity incongruity, I think, really um, presented itself to me in lots of little ways. But in 2008, it all sort of uh, came undone for me, uh, that uh, my, my adherence to this narrative uh, during Operation Cast Lead, which was December of 2008, January 2009, Israel's military assault. How did they, how did they refer to that, Operation? Operation Cast Lead was the, uh, the, the military name for the uh, operation. Meaning... Uh, it's interesting. It occurred. Uh, it's interesting. A little troubling, actually. Uh, it occurred during Hanukkah, uh, and there is an Israeli uh, children's song uh, about uh, a dreidel. Uh, it's a very well-known uh, children's song based on, I believe, on a poem by uh, the venerable Israeli poet Bialik uh, that talks about I made a dreidel out of cast lead. And so they used this very well-known children's song as the moniker for this incredibly uh, brutal and deadly assault on uh, the people of Gaza, the Palestinians within Gaza. Um, and as many know now, um, it was uh, it was a uh, uh, a terrible time. Uh, Israel was dropping um, literally hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs on a tiny little strip of land in the Gaza Strip where there were a million and a half Palestinians who were literally blockaded in with nowhere to run. And when I read about it, I just, uh, something in me just um, changed. You know, I, uh, I really didn't hear the voice that apologized for it anymore, or tried to rationalize it away, or uh, um, tried to equivocate in any way. I really realized for myself that this was an outrage. This was a war crime. This was not something that I could um, in any way condone or sweep under the rug or explain away. And so I began writing very um, powerful and pointed blog posts uh, on my blog uh, for the duration. 
that um, caused a, quite a stir, actually, both on my blog. I got more comments for my initial blog post than I ever have had or, or have had since. Uh, and it caused, as you might imagine, a huge amount of dust to be raised in my own congregation. Um, Absolutely. You're, you're a pulpit rabbi whose, whose job it is to represent, to reinforce, to, to lead spiritually and otherwise um, a, a very large and diverse group of, right. of Jews. And here you are right. taking a stand that, as you explained by telling us a little about your family of origin, is, is, you know, it's more typically that even the perhaps liberal Jews in your congregation are more nationalistic, more, you know, uh, easily uh, likely to support Israel, even when they're the perpetrators of the kind of assaults that, that you're describing here. Right. 2008. Right. And, right. and even when uh, we would never condone it if another country had done these things. And, so, right, needless to say, I mean, there are, there were people, a small number of people within my congregation who uh, applauded what I said and wrote and said, I've been waiting my whole life to hear rabbis um, say these things out loud and thank you. And then there were people on the other end of the spectrum who were just infuriated. And I, you know, I was, I was bashing Israel at its time of need and, um, you know, I, how dare I, uh, you know, change my message on Israel that they had been um, so, I think, familiar with for so long from me. Uh, I felt like a betrayal, I'm sure. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the middle, the, in the middle section, which is the largest section, there were people who were just uh, intrigued by what I was writing and, and what it was implying and eager to, um, to carry that conversation on further. And many of those conversations uh, occurred on my blog, and they also occurred in the uh, in my congregation, we hired facilitators, professional facilitators from an organization in Philadelphia that specializes in helping congregations talk about Israel-Palestine to come and facilitate uh, conversations where they trained members of our con congregation to be small group leaders. And little by little, um, I went from this place of despair that, you know, initially not sure, I, I felt like I was really jumping into the abyss with this, with this transition and not sure if I could... Um, continue, quite frankly, as a as a rabbi or even a rabbi of my congregation, to um, really finding a lot of heart. Not that necessarily everyone agreed with everything I was writing, but that they were able to to bear the message and to talk about it and to wrestle with it together. Wow. And that's what my book is about. It's a, a two year slice of my posts on Israel Palestine um, because I broadened them well after the the. Uh, the uh, operation in Gaza to address all kinds of other issues. Okay, and so it, so here's this the, the defining moment in, in the context of what we came to talk about today makes so much sense. You you had been blogging for a couple of years before this operation started, and from the the you know you might say more general uh, social justice issue, uh, kind of the range of issues that you were taking up on this Shalom Rav, which in one way might mean peace rabbi um the the shift you've just described the book that resulted is called wrestling in the daylight a rabbi's path to Pal palestinian uh solidarity wrestling in the daylight is uh brant rosen's book and we're going to talk about it after this break stay tuned uh my guest is rabbi brant rosen we're calling today's show wrestling with the holy land and we'll be right back after just a couple of messages 
Welcome back. This is the Grateful Dad Radio Hour in our new home on milehighradio.com. I am tickled to be here and uh, so glad that you've tuned in. Our conversation today is with Rabbi Brant Rosen, um, not only a pulpit clergy and spiritual leader for a large Jewish Reconstructionist uh, congregation in Evanston, Illinois, but also a peace activist and author. We're going to be talking about that and also a poet. I want to bring this in at the end of our conversation if I can. It it helps to to bring me down um, from a very what 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 can be a very difficult conversation. Just just to note that we try to have meaningful conversations about men at home, at work, and at play from various angles. And uh, next week, <clears throat> August twenty sixth, on this show, uh, just two days before the actual. Uh, 50th anniversary of the historic uh, mouth march on Washington um, for uh, jobs and and justice. Um, the topic is Black Man Rising with uh, Mike Thompson from the Father Show Resource Program and perhaps others. We're going to talk about how um, uh, black uh, men in the community who are elders, what, what, what they are doing to support African American men as, as male mentors in their communities. Um, and then as the counterpoint to that, after a holiday and a couple weeks off with the Jewish holidays, I'll be back and the show is, uh, White Man Falling with Professor Abby Ferber sharing her expertise on white supremacists um, in the wake of the uh, assassination in Colorado of the Department of Corrections chief uh, that's been linked to a uh, prison gang uh, that aligns with white supremacy. So Black Man Rising, White Man Falling, August 26th, September 16th. Stay tuned for that and um, stay tuned today. Um, Rabbi Brant Rosen is with me and I'm, I'd, I'd like it uh, you know, a, a nice follow-on from what you were sharing, Brent, was um, how your blog uh, eventually became a, a book. Um, Wrestling in the Daylight, as we said, was published um, by Just World Books just last year. It, it's great because when I first met you, I'll never forget one of the first things when literally we were just introduced. It was you were interviewing for a job, as I recall, and you acknowledged, I, I definitely have a book in me. How did this, how did this one come about and, and what can readers expect, um, when they go to the Just World Books, uh, website and pick up a copy of Wrestling in the Daylight, um, about a rabbi who went from really a, as you say, a liberal Zionist to, uh, someone in solidarity with the Palestinian people and their struggle? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you, you, I don't remember saying that, but I can certainly imagine having said that back, <laughs> back in the day when I was interviewing to become a rabbi. Um, I think for a long time I've, I felt like I've had a book in me at least one, but I never, never dreamed it would be this book, um, both either in content or, um, the nature of the book. Uh, I, 
never thought that I would take such a strong, uh, strong dissident really stand on uh, an issue that's so central to Jews and Jewish identity and, and Judaism. Um, but really the book uh, sort of revealed itself to me. It was never the plan to write a book. Um, I had been blogging since, since 2006, I believe. Uh, when I started my blog, it was um, back... Today it's pretty common for rabbis to have blogs, but back then it was still sort of a new technology for rabbis. It was new for and everybody, I just, man. I, I remember that. I, I, you know, I'm always impressed by you, but you were cutting edge when I got wind of uh, uh, Shalom Rav. Thanks. You know, I, I discovered, uh, I actually did discover the medium from another rabbi, a dear friend of mine, you might know, Shai Gluskin, Rabbi Shai Gluskin. Uh-huh. Who, um, you know, I, I love to write, and I think I'm sort of a frustrated uh journalist at heart, and <laughs> blogging just gave me the opportunity to write about anything or everything that popped into my head, and it was also an opportunity that to have an, an additional way to keep in touch with my congregants and, and to, uh, for them to hear what was on my mind. So in the early days, I wrote about just all kinds of things, just anything and everything that, that I thought was interesting or funny or um, some of those issues that were keeping me up nights. This was also before grown-ups had discovered Facebook, so I kind of used it. If you look back at those early days on the blog, I, if I found like a, a fun YouTube video, I put that on there. You know, I sort of used it the way many of us use our Facebook pages today. Yeah, I recall that absolutely. And, and I think over the years, it, it really sort of evolved into a, a blog that was focused more exclusively on social justice issues, and particularly on Israel-Palestine. And so um, I had built up quite a readership, I think, at least for a modest blog like mine, um, when I wrote that post in 2008. And once I wrote that post, it just completely changed the blog. Uh, it, not only me, it, it, the, the, having that medium to think out loud and wrestle out loud with these issues um, probably caused me to, um, to find the courage of my convictions more readily than had I not had this medium. And so I would just think out loud and immediately have people respond. And um, as I mentioned, that first blog post had something like 180 comments, and they just kept coming and coming, and many of them were horribly angry, and some of them were very supportive, and some of them were curious, and then they started co- talking to each other. And Yeah. Um, yeah, people that didn't know each other even. I mean, you some people clearly, didn't, many of them were congregants who I knew. But you clearly, as they say, you touched a nerve, um, and and your readership and the greater Jewish community, the, especially the American Jewish community, had to take note as as you know as you acknowledged, uh, uh, like your congregants said, a rabbi who you know really among the first to speak out in a way that challenged, you know, without question as we so often have have find ourselves asked to what israel was doing with the palestinian people living in its borders and in the occupied territories and pause for a second if you would rabbi brant rosen's my guest we're talking about his book wrestling in the daylight and wrestling in the title might not make total sense to some listeners your, your choice of words is is i gather from the origin of the word israel itself it's something like related to the name given to the patriarch Jacob when he, after he wrestled with an angel, what's this piece about wrestling? What does it have to do with the title or with the broader sense of 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 our, our, our Judaism? So I explained this in the very, very beginning of my introduction. Uh, and uh, I quote a line from Torah, from the book of Genesis, that said, uh, 
that it was uh, the dead of night and Jacob wrestled with a man until the break of day. And I asked the question, why? You know, first of all, there's many questions. It's, it's this very sort of cryptic verse. Um, yeah. Who was this mysterious man? You know, some say he's an angel. Some say he's uh, Jacob's shadow side. Some people say Jacob's alter ego or conscience. Mm-hmm. And also, why at night? And um, <laughs> I suggested that I think for many of us, when we do our deepest wrestling, the, the hardest wrestling, whether they're with our own personal existential issues or broader issues, uh, that we, we tend to do them privately. We don't, it's very difficult to share them with others. Um, uh, and that's, that might be one way of understanding Jacob wrestling in the dead of night, that this was a, a personal, private wrestling that he was not able to, uh, to do publicly in some fashion. Uh, eventually he was. He eventually embraces his brother the next morning um, um, and wrestles very much in the daylight, uh, in a sense. And so I use that metaphor for my own struggle, that I, I very consciously chose to wrestle in the daylight um, when you I wrote that indeed. blog post and, and began my new journey as a, as a rabbi who was also someone standing in solidarity with the Palestinians. You did indeed. By, by bringing it to, uh, you know, the interwebs, as we call them, you, you know, you're bringing this into daylight, something that, you know, very few dared to talk about, you know, maybe except in the privacy and the, you know, quote unquote, under cover of night in their own homes and in their closest uh, confidants. And here you are bringing this to, to the daylight and wrestling with it, as as I gather the you know the Jewish people in particular are called upon to do to to not accept blindly, but to wrestle with the concepts that that uh, engage us every day in our in our faith and our lives and the ethics and the values that we um, you know are taught and ascribed to. So I'm talking with Rabbi Brant Rosen. The the book is Wrestling in the Daylight: A Rabbi's Path to Palestinian Solidarity. It's on Just World Books, and you can you can get it at their website. Um, there's a lot of intriguing sort of you know bullet points from from the what amounts to the chapters in the books, and and I wonder if you'd wrestle just a little bit with one of those for us now before we maybe pivot to some other conversation. Um, I encountered this, Brandon, and the reason that I invited you here, not that I haven't wanted to do this since the book was, uh, you know, not, we knew it was going to be published, but I think it took my own uh, journey to the Holy Land, Israel, Palestine, to see for myself. And one of the questions that was raised a little bit in conversation with um, another uh, Jewish scholar and soon-to-be rabbi in training, um, Dr. Karen Aviv, was this question of, of, was the founding of Israel itself based on an injustice that continues to this day? Um, you know, how do you take that up? How do you, uh, if, if possible, kind of briefly, <laughs> briefly, right, encapsulate sure. no, that I, question? I, I, mean, I think that's, that's an important point. And um, it speaks to this, the way we, the, the very frame that we choose to understand this, this situation. And, um, I think the, a very typical Jewish narrative is that the founding of the nation um, was, uh, especially Jew, the Jewish, the, the liberal Zionist narrative, is that, um, yes, it involved uh, tragedy and in some cases injustice, but the, but the, um, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish state was founded out of a necessity, that the Jews needed a, a land of their own in order to be safe and to be a, 
Yes, reminding listeners very simply that this was post-Holocaust, that, that six million Jews had just died in the camps and, and at the hands of, of the Nazis. And this land, this, this Zionist movement eventually grew out of needing a homeland, a safe place for Jews. Zionism had been, of course, around for many, yes, many yes. Uh, years before the Holocaust, but really as a relatively small movement. It wasn't until after the Holocaust that it was uh, taken up by by the Western powers and um, gained momentum and became eventually a reality. But, you know, when it came to what the Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, and mm-hmm. what uh, Israelis and Jews call Israeli independence, mm-hmm. um, there is a sharp divergence uh, in terms of the narrative. Um, the The... Zionist narrative is that they very much uh, were happy to have two states, uh, that there was a partition plan drawn up by the UN, and that it was rejected by the Arab world, and uh, the Jews were attacked, and they were defending themselves, and they had no choice. Um, And there were many Palestinians who were caught in the crossfire, and that was regrettable, um, and turned into refugees in many cases. Uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees, 700,000, and uh, but uh, that was never what Israel wanted. And um, that narrative has actually been um, challenged and in many ways debunked by many Israeli historians, uh, as you might know. The, the new Israeli historians who have been studying uh, declassified military documents who, who state pretty conclusively now, and uh, I think it's fairly accepted in, in many academic Israeli circles that, in fact, the uh, the ethnic cleansing of non-Jews from that land was planned well before 1947 and 48, and that it was a necessity. Uh, you can't have a Jewish state with, with uh, a majority of non-Jews, and the presence of so many non-Jews was a problem from the very beginning. And that was always one of those little voices that nagged at me over the years that I never really fully wrestled with, which is to create an ethnically Jewish state in a part of the world that has historically been so multi-ethnic and multi-religious, was bound to engender conflict and tragedy. Um, How could it not? Absolutely. An ethnic nation, a nation whose identity, the central identity of that nation is predicated on one religion, one one ethnic identity, um, is going to exclude people, ipso facto, through its its very nature. And as Americans, you know, we live, uh, we have a civic national identity where we cherish diversity, uh, at least, you know, progressive liberal Americans, such as we are. Um, but again, when it comes to the ethnocracy that Israel has created, um, we, we tend to uh, apologize for it. And yeah, I, 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 I hate to boil this down, you know, to, to you know, the, simp- the, the, the simplistic terms I need to bring it in, but the irony here is, is, really evident to me we're coming you know post holocaust post world war ii from a place where ethnic cleansing was essentially you know being perpetrated against our people and we want to set up a land understandably we want safety from what we've just experienced and yet it's as if we're replicating some of the very atrocities that were perpetrated against us right and i want to be clear i'm in no way trying to equate uh, the death camps that the Nazis created for Jews with, with what happened in, uh, during the Nakba and, and the creation of Israel. But, but the basic notion of what we have come to call ethnic cleansing, which is you see, seeing a certain demographic group uh, in a place as a problem, 
um, to your national designs. I think that is the same, and, and it invariably leads to tragedy. And many Palestinians that I've met and um, uh, and have read uh, as well uh, will say, you know, the, yes, the Holocaust was a terrible tragedy for the Jews, but why are we now paying the price for that tragedy? We had nothing uh-huh. to do with it. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I think that's a question that American Jews and Jews in general um, should actually entertain quite seriously because we so easily equate the Holocaust with the creation of the State of Israel. Um, but we don't stop to think about what you just said, which is the fact that in many ways we were repeating many of the tropes that, were, that we experienced as victims ourselves. And I think until we really do that, uh, I don't think we're going to get to the root of any kind of fundamental solution to this, to this conflict. Well, thanks for taking this up. This is the kind of thing that, that readers will encounter um, in, in your book, Wrestling in the Daylight, Just World Books, just last year, um, and they can get it uh, that way as, as well as the usual uh, sources for their books. And, and I originally reached out to you, and, and you were able to call in um, when I got back from my trip to the Holy Land, and I wanted to kind of download my experience. Um, uh, I, I just got five or ten minutes with you, and we began to talk about the modern-day state of Israel that I had just encountered um you know you because you're so active in in raising awareness to you know all who who are interested in in the plight of the Palestinians in both the West Bank and Gaza what we call the occupied territories along with those living within the borders uh of Israel um wherever they're living their experience is, is that of being marginalized of of being oppressed and you know as i mentioned to you then we had a hard time finding east jerusalem we were in jerusalem looking at maps and it was if they 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 didn't show and some of the tourist maps didn't show that it was there at all and other you know didn't give street names or or anything else and and you know i know this experience is not just for you know the casual short term visitor because as i mentioned a moment ago we just had an israeli house guest and she she first you know said oh did you get to jerusalem it is such a magical city and i we agreed and then later she acknowledged especially after going through this this peace program that she'd been unaware that there was even a palestinian side of town so you know, what do we do with this? Or what do I do with this, Brant? Um, I get a, an email from the Jewish National Fund with the subject line, Keeping the Children of Sterot Smiling. And and we're talking about a, a city very close to Gaza where um, the, the children were clearly traumatized by incoming rockets that, that had been launched um, probably from Al-Qaeda uh, terrorist types living within the occupied territory of Gaza. Um, and I feel this internal context, conflict, you know, my own tension within my own Jewish community um, before I even get to deal with the conflict in the Middle East. I mean, can you talk about this? Sure. I mean, it's uh, the first thing I would say is that I have no personal experience. I can't even imagine how it must feel to, to live in Sterot, so close to Gaza and to be under uh, rocket fire uh, as, as they are. Uh, so that's the first step. I in no way want to minimize uh, their experience. But again, I think we have to look at this experience in a greater context. And the context that I have chosen to, uh, to view this, and I, I'm willing to defend it, is that this is just the latest incarnation of uh, an injustice and oppression that goes back to the founding of this state and even uh, before that, that we have 
a military power that is occupying another people, uh, in many cases oppressing them. You know, Gaza, people think about Gaza in terms of the latest rockets that come out. People don't know the history of Gaza. Gaza was never a densely populated uh, strip of land until 1948 when Israel packed it full of refugees mm. uh, uh, from uh, Palestine. And uh, from the very beginning, uh, there were raids out of Gaza um, from these people because, quite simply, when people are oppressed, they tend to fight back. They tend to resist. And that resistance has been going on for decades now. And um, I, my understanding of this, uh, this conflict comes from my own spiritual tradition, that, that my God uh, preaches liberation and, and uh, demands that we stand up against oppression and stand with the oppressed. And while it's undeniably difficult for the people of State Road to live under rocket fire, they have bomb shelters they can go to. They, have, uh, they can leave State Road and go to other places in Israel to stay with relatives. Um, the Palestinians of Gaza don't have bomb shelters. They don't. They can't leave. They are blockaded in. They're in an open-air prison. Uh, so the, we have to reckon with the balance of power here. And uh, it's not just a ping-pong game, you know, tit for tat, kind of the attack them, they attack us. This is, a, is a, in my understanding, uh, an oppressive situation. And uh, it's very difficult for Jews to reckon with the possibility that white people might be oppressors. It's and very again, difficult. What we do. I don't know that we're going to find our way out of this nightmare. Thank you. This is this is you know it's so helpful and so enlightening you know for me to to just you know go through this with you. I mean, it, it, it's one thing to to read it in your blog and your book, and and thank you for you know wrestling live on the air with with me about this. Um, I want to you know we're going to have to pivot towards some closure here, but I wanted to add in a couple of. Uh, current events. The, the first would be um, any insights you might be able to share on the impact of this, um, the, the awful Syrian civil war just happening, you know, to, 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 to the north of, of Israel, and then the resurgence of all the, this instability and the, the horrible events just in, in recent days, starting on just June 30th and, and uh, coming, you know, right up till, till these recent nearly a thousand deaths at the hands of the Egyptian military. Um, and, and the recent, the, the attack to just earlier today in Sinai. These are Israel's neighbors with whom they forged, well, not so much with Syria, but with Egypt. You know, I mean, what impact are these, uh, terrible crises, uh, going to have already having, might we be aware of vis-a-vis the situation and and Israel um, today. Well, my my uh, I think uh, my fear is that it's going to um, strengthen Israel's resolve to um, become more militarized in its response. And again, every nation has uh, a duty to protect its citizens, but but I think we need to think about very seriously as Americans. Um, how, what is the way toward real security long-term, not just short-term, but long-term? And, again, we have to have a larger picture. These, these uh, conflicts didn't just arise out of a vacuum yesterday. You know, they, there's a history to them. Um, in, in the case of the Arab nations, it goes all the way back to the end of World War I when the Western powers, you know, uh, after making promises to many of these Arab uh, countries or leaders, uh, divvied up the, the, the countries and um, gave them to, you know, the, as the victors, as the Western leaders as spoils. And 
without much uh, attention given to the ethnic divisions, the, the national divisions, the, the, the cultural uh, uh, divisions in that part of the world. And the only way that you can really keep uh, tension down in, in that kind of a situation is to create totalitarian regimes, you know, um, and they, they don't last forever. You know, we know that. Clearly. Pharaohs um, fall sooner or later, and now we're finding that. And, um, and I think before we as Americans uh, get too eager to go in and intervene or meddle uh, the way we have historically done and way, the way other powers have historically done just to, to recreate the problem anew, I think we have to think differently. Okay. Um, create okay. new paradigms for, for diplomacy and uh, um well, let me pivot quickly. Let me pivot quickly to this then. Two words, peace talks. What do you make of them? John Kerry is uh, leading the way as the U.S. Secretary of State. These are the first efforts to resume in, I think, better than a decade, bringing Israeli and Palestinian leaders to the table. What hope do you see? What hitches do you see? I'm not, I'm not hopeful, mm-hmm. as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I go back to the power dynamic, um, reckoning with the power imbalance. But these are not true peace talks as long as you have um, the United States, which uh, is supposed to be the mediator in the situation, is um, overwhelmingly favors Israel, gives Israel uh, more military aid than $3 billion a year than any other country in the world, um, as long as Israel doesn't, is unwilling to keep Israel from colonizing Palestinian lands in the West Bank as these talks are going on. Yes, um, yes. You know, uh, I think the Palestinians are at a severe disadvantage, and I think this is not about creating a real equitable, uh, territorial, territorially contiguous Palestinian state. This is really about um, the world's greatest superpower and Israel as patron uh, trying to force a capitulation on the part of the Palestinians in the name of peace. And uh, that's... I uh, wish, I wish you, you could... know, that's what has happened in past attempts. And yes. My prediction is it's going to happen here as well. It's going to, it's going to fail on its face. I wish, I wish we were more hopeful in the face of this. The two-state solution seems like what, what, what we could hope for. And, uh, my guest today, Rabbi Brant Rosen, um, in all honesty is suggesting that it's, it's a real long shot. It doesn't mean we don't hope for it. Uh, because we need to wrap up, um, I may ask you for a, a short poem at the end. Uh, my guest has been Rabbi Brant Rosen, um, both an activist and a, a clergyman, a pulpit rabbi who's preparing for the days of awe. The Jewish holidays are ahead. We are in the month of Elul, a time of reflection and preparation for a very intense inner journey that we take in the new year. And for uh, another occasion, in addition to um, his website, Shalom Rav, uh, and his book uh, where you can read um, all about his wrestling with the Holy Land, he has uh, Yadid Nefesh, Y-N-E-F-E-S-H dot com, where he offers uh, poems and psalms. And I wonder if you could take us out with that, uh, with one Rabbi Brandt, uh, uh, which psalm and how have you interpreted it? Sure, I'd be honored to, and I'll make a pivot here from uh, from uh, angry uh, <laughs> and frustrated uh, analyses of what's going on in that part of the world to something more apropos of the season. So I've reworked uh, the Psalms. I'm right in the middle of this project, um, and uh, I'll go back to, this is, I think, more appropriate to the season of forgiveness and repentance. Uh, it's my reworking of Psalm 46 entitled Waters of Refuge. Astonishing how one's world can be ripped asunder with 
brutal efficiency, tectonic plates shift less than a millimeter and mountains crumble to the ground. A ripple widens ever so gently in the midst of the waters and soon families, homes, whole nations are washed to the sea. Yet far from the surface destruction, somewhere deep inside there are waters even the mightiest elements cannot touch. A river that flows freely yet is never perturbed. Its surface is glassy and silent as the dead of night. Come visit this holiest of holy places when the turbulence becomes too much for you to bear. Let these waters be your refuge, your stronghold, so gloriously insulated against the terror and disquiet. Here is where all clamor ceases, all winds are calmed, all nations disarmed. Here you may dive deeper and deeper into the waters, yet never go under. Here the howling of gale-forced winds sounds like nothing more than the most imperceptible whisper breathing softly through your soul. That was Psalm number 46. Psalm 46, entitled Waters of Refuge. Thank you. My guest and the poet there, Rabbi Brant Rosen, we've been talking about, we've been wrestling with the Holy Land today on the Grateful Dad Radio Hour. RabbiBrant.com and Y-N-E-F-E-S-H.com, two places you can uh, touch both the political activist and the the poet rewriting psalms. Um, on a daily basis, my gratitude to you, Rabbi Brandt, for being our guest today, uh, a big subject that really it's hard to contain within the hour, which is why we've run, run on just a little bit with the freedom we have at milehighradio.com. I thank you, and I wish you a, a season of peace and joy. Um, I didn't even get to ask uh, what you're going to uh, do for sermons this year, but I hope you'll share those and come back and join us again. I'd be, I'd be honored to, and thank you so much, Doug, for, uh, for your friendship and for, for having me. I'm grateful. As we all do uh, every week, we have to, to just simply remind you that until uh, we get together again, please be grateful. I'm Doug Gertner, the Grateful Dad, and I appreciate you joining us on Mile High Radio for the Grateful Dad Radio Hour. Next week, it'll be uh, Black Man Rising, so come back on the 26th. And until then, do be grateful. Bye now. 